1: Welcome to Retire With Style, YouTube Live Edition, first of the year. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my trusted companion, Wade Fowl. Wade, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you, Alex? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, we actually haven't recorded a podcast in a while, so it, 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 it's been a minute, right, Wade?
2: It has. Yeah. We've been running a few repeat episodes to celebrate the end of the year as we've been off doing different things, (laughs) spending time with family, but we're, we're ready for a exciting and impactful 2024.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I, I loved your framing, how it was. We've been running a few repeat episodes. (laughs) Dude,
2: it's, it's best of best common in the podcast game. Yeah. They were the most popular episodes of the
1: past year. I hear you, and so yep, we're on it. Since we're doing YouTube, we're not looking at YouTube ourselves. We're not looking at that window, so bear with us. And Amber's given us the green light that we, Wade, you in particular, look as handsome as ever on this thing. So we're we're good to go. We're good to go. Uh, interesting. We we did send out questions ahead of time. Truthfully, though, we're looking at them about an hour before the the presentation, and I think we're gonna have to break this up because we've got tons of great questions. Yeah, some questions are
2: multi-parters. We had more than 50 questions come in. So behind the scenes, we've been planning to do a long-term care arc for a long time. And I think that's going to get pushed back (laughs) further because we're going to do a few episodes now just trying to work through the questions. So if we didn't get to your question today, and and some of these questions are paragraph essays. (laughs) So (laughs) they need to be parsed down a little bit and not just read live on the air. Uh, But we'll we'll do a few episodes with with Q&A, but we'll get started with some of those questions today and also keep track of questions that come in through the, the YouTube channel itself.
1: And it's funny, huh? You could tell that our our listeners, readers, what have you are are a different breed. This is not this is not your your mother's financial planning podcast, it seems. Uh it's you know pretty in depth. So we'll get cracking. There, there will there really won't be time for small talk, Wade. What do you think about that? I don't <laughs> yeah, know. I did up. see
2: enjoyed the small talk, but I'm not gonna get a... <laughs> An expose on what all Alex did during the New Year's other than I hear yeah, yeah. a lot of push-ups and a lot of pull-ups
1: <laughs> well we're trying we're trying man and we're cold trying plunges. Uh, well that too the kids too the kids actually they did uh like I, like 30 days in a row so it was it was they did it even That's so a, that was a cold good to plunge? see but or the yeah, 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 yeah. That's the cold plunge. I just, you know, we have like a horse trough. We just put it out in the back and we get in it every morning and it is what it is. And uh, never better, never better wait. Yeah, I don't think I'll uh, ever wait, do wait that. I don't even over. like
2: getting into like a 80 degree water. So the cold plunge is out of the question. We'll see. We'll see.
1: For, for today. For today. <laughs> All right. We don't, we don't have limiting beliefs in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so... uh All right. Why don't we kick it off? I will do my best to put the first question in the bank and uh, we'll knock it out. So the first question. uh, Here we go. Do you have advice on creating a detailed plan about how to build investments into your retirement income optimization map? That's uh, the Rio map. I am trying to map future assets and liabilities in a realistic way. Income from my family's defined benefit retirement plan, annuities, and Social Security monthly projections are relatively straightforward, but I'm struggling with projecting investment assets into the real map. I am currently aiming for extremely low safe withdrawal rate of 3.15%. Given my asset mix based on historical data and because I want my projections to be conservative, how do you think about projecting the future income? That's the first part. Also, if possible, can you briefly touch on some strategies you would implement to reduce sequence of returns risk in a modeling using this framework? In a model using this framework. Another question. Then specific actions or guardrails to implement in the real map in anticipation of the first 10 to 15 years of retirement would be appreciated. So that's to address the fragile decade. I'm familiar with some of your writing, so an in-weeds level of detail would be great. Thank you for all that you do. All the best, especially to you, Alex, and not wait, Ben. <laughs> and the question was addressed to you,
2: huh? <laughs> yeah, that that's a good question. It's an example of a one of the not the longest question we received, but it's the, <laughs> the longest one we'll we'll look at today. The others just for the sake of being able to read through them, we're a bit shorter. But yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. And maybe we should start with just reminding everyone what the Rio map is, which it's just a visual presentation of how I like to think about retirement income. You've got the 4L financial goals on the left, the longevity, lifestyle, legacy, and liquidity. You have the liabilities on the right that are mapped to those goals, the essential spending, uh, the discretionary spending legacy and contingencies or spending shocks. And then you have three types of, uh, of assets for the planning process. You have the, um, <laughs> I'm like, on what we, a oh, reliable income, of course, reliable income, the diversified portfolio and liquidity for the unexpected spending shocks. And it's a visual representation that we use to then move into the funded ratio. And I think a lot of what we can discuss with this question relates to how to think about this in the context of the funded ratio, at least the first part of the question. Absolutely. Okay. So, so in in that regard, yeah, I mean, the. Oh, do you want me to do it? Yeah. Were you handing to it off talking? to me? <laughs> no, you're, you're on a roll, man. You're on a
1: roll. No, it's uh, uh, sure. I mean uh, to bring it into a funded ratio, what wade said is effectively he's looking at an ass he's looking at assets and liabilities and liabilities being future spending, right? And uh, from that standpoint, what the funded ratio does is it's it's a big division. It's assets divided by liabilities, which is how pensions and companies like and, and that's how they decide how they're going to if they're funded or not relative to their Future liabilities, so we feel the funded ratio is a perfect first step towards really getting a sense of how you want to strategically allocate your balance sheet in preparation for doing what uh, this person wanted to do with regards to their their plan. Now, here, go on, William. well while I look we for yeah, because we get question. into
2: this, so we do the with retirement research or the periodic retirement income challenges. We'll have the next one, I, I think, in the last week of February. And that'll give you No, the first it's, it's
1: first of March the first probably of March. at this
2: point. It'll be coming. We haven't announced it publicly yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming soon. And you do get week-long Eminently. access. We have a, a tool to do the funded ratio. So as we're describing this process right now, just keep in mind that you you can have the opportunity to take a look at this. But it's it's an effort to quantify the the Rio map, the retirement income optimization map. And and Ben's thinking about this right in terms of looking at reliable income. Social security, pensions, annuities, bond letters, that sort of thing. And with the funded ratio tool, we show you, do you have enough reliable income to meet your essential expenses? And then we look at diversified portfolio matched up against the uh, discretionary goals and legacy. And it's all based on getting into, I mean, this question is getting into the idea of investment risk and so forth. The funded ratio is based on do you have enough assets without taking market risk? If you just earn bond like returns, do you have sufficient assets to meet your goals? And if you have a large enough diversified portfolio, which with interest rates where they are, if you're looking at a 3.15% withdrawal rate, uh, that is below the, uh, you can safely support that with bonds in the current kind of interest rate environment that we face, you'll find yourself overfunded. And so then you can think about how much of that portfolio will you allocate to the lifestyle goals, to the legacy goals. And then you may also be able to reposition some of that portfolio into reserve assets to deal with spending shocks as well. And that's really the first step in understanding like what sort of risk you want to face. I mean, when you think about what's my asset allocation going to be, my, my ratio of stocks to bonds, part of that is based on your risk tolerance, is uh, how comfortable am I, am, am I with market volatility? But part of that is based on your risk capacity. How much risk do I even need to take? If, if I can safely meet my goals because I'm overfunded by primarily using bond investments, then I can think about, well, do I want to take market risk or how much market risk do I want to take? Or do I want to lock part of that in to make sure I've got those uh, spending needs covered and then invest the remainder more with more a more aggressive approach? But that's really how to start thinking about the first step of asset allocation is just understanding is market risk even needed, and that's what the funded ratio tool is designed to do.
1: And what, what what I would add in terms of that first part, or and this is the framing in which it was asked, and we get this as well. Uh, uh, this phrase: "I am currently aiming for extremely for an extremely low safe withdrawal rate of three point one five, given my asset mix based on historic data." and because i want my projections to be conservative. a couple of, couple of questions that that statement arises for me. the first is if you're if you have previously you stated you have pensions and annuities and social security. and so i'm I, i'd ask myself how much of those income sources are funding your essential expenses. if it's if it's a significant amount then are you doubling up quote unquote on the conservatism Mm -hmm. on your portfolio, right? Because at the end of the day, you can't take this with you. And and you don't want to spend a good, you know, let's say you retire at 65 and you got until 95. You don't want to spend a good 20 to 30 years just sacrificing for not when you have essential expenses covered. And so I would kind of rethink that a little bit. The other piece is based on historic data and, and stuff like that. I I, you know, historical data is fine, but I, I, I think you got to look at what the current environment is signaling going forward rather than just being overly reliant on historical data because that's just what happened back then. I, I mean, you get measures of central tendency and things along those lines from the historical data, but I think you can project without like trying to time the market and be more realistic about things. Uh, that's, that's from the first part. Do you agree with my interpretation of that first kind of statement that that person made?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely in terms of, with a defined benefit pension, annuities, and social security, I I don't know what the spending goal is, but it's quite possible. (laughs) You have enough reliable income to meet your essential spending, which gives you risk tolerance. Your lifestyle is not as vulnerable to a market downturn because you have all this reliable income. And in that regard, there's two ways to be more aggressive in face of this capacity. You can spend more aggressively or you could invest more aggressively. And I I think that's the point you're getting at with you don't necessarily yes. need to use a low withdrawal rate from the investments if you already have all this reliable income because you, you have the capacity to potentially spend down your portfolio in, in the face of sequence of returns risk and so forth, but not have it disrupt your retirement in a truly disastrous type of way. So,
1: And, and that, that gets to the second and third part of the question, which is, I, I think there's similar statements, which is, you know, how would you go about reducing sequence of return risk using this framework? And then uh, what, are, you know, what are guardrails to implement you know, in, in, within the real map within the first five to 10 years of retirement? So effectively, I'm entering the fragile decade. How do I you know, ease into this and not mess myself up? Uh, I'll, I'll start it off, and, and you can finish it off here. If you look at the real map, this, goes, this is kind of a little bit of an extension to then our previous statement, which is if you're funding to the degree possible – essential expenses with reliable income and reliable income is not a sustainable withdrawal rate. There is no safe withdrawal rate from a volatile portfolio. There just isn't, you know, the marketing won that game by calling it safe withdrawal rate, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, the reality is you want to see what you have, you know, how much of it is matched, you know, within that. And then from there, you can do certain things to kind of ease into it. Uh, you know, Wade spoke, spoke about a gliding, a, a glide path portfolio. Which is an effect. It's it's almost like a like a undercover bond ladder strategy, you know, and, and that should give you some sort of uh, I don't know buffer. Now, buffer is wrong word in the way we use it, but that should give you some sort of comfort in knowing that if you know when you start your retirement and things go sideways, well, you have a higher than expected bond allocation that should dampen the volatility. Now, there's a, because you already have though again, the pension and the annuities, maybe there's no need for it. It, There could be a little bit of an overkill here. But wait,
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's so like, how do you manage sequence of returns risk? At the end of the day, I talk about there's four basic strategies, which have a lot of subcategories. Uh, The one is just using a lower withdrawal rate, which I think is where this question is starting from. But you you do have other options too. You can have variable spending. So if if you just build in this idea that I'd be comfortable cutting back on spending a little bit if I do get a negative sequence of market returns, that can support a higher initial withdrawal rate. And that helps reduce some of the sequence risk because it doesn't force you to sell the <laughs> to to fund the same level of spending in a declining market environment. You can do that sort of bond laddered approach or a time-segmented approach where you have assets that are not exposed to market volatility matched to the short-term expenses. You have individual bonds maturing to, to cover the short-term expenses, which can give your portfolio an opportunity to recover in the face of a market downturn. You can look at different types of annuity strategies, but I think that's already pretty much covered for this individual with all that reliable income. And then there's the buffer asset idea. And and I think there were other, we've had other questions that we'll get into in in subsequent episodes with this series uh, on on the rising equity glide path, but also on buffer assets. And buffer assets is is something outside the portfolio, not correlated with the portfolio that you really think of as a, a buffer that if, if you get a negative sequence of market returns, you can temporarily tap into the buffer asset to cover spending without having to sell from your portfolio, and that will hopefully give your portfolio a chance to recover. could be a pile of cash, it could be the growing line of credit on a reverse mortgage, home equity, conversion mortgage, variable rate, HECM. It could also be, if, if you've set this up in advance, the, the cash value of a whole life insurance policy as well. Those are examples of buffer assets that could provide, again, temporary spending resources to help manage that sequence risk in the early retirement years.
1: Yeah. And and just to state the, we don't consider like, oh, my bond allocation as a buffer asset, just one of those things.
0: Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals.
1: Uh, okay. I, I think we can move on. Uh, that was a great question to get us started. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there's a lot of questions coming in on the, the YouTube, uh, live as well. I want to give
1: some of those since they're live. Sure.
2: Yeah. Um, can you talk about okay. oh, the first one? So we'll just kind of look at All these. Right. Can you talk about a stock annuity portfolio being more efficient than a stock bond portfolio for supporting spending and retirement? Sure. Yeah. And that actually touches on themes related to some of these other questions uh, that we'll be looking at. But for me, going with research that I did now about 12 years ago, this idea of... The efficient frontier for retirement income being more of a, a stock annuity portfolio instead of a stock bond portfolio. That protected lifetime income uh, replaces bonds when you don't know how long you're going to live to <laughs> to have protected income that matches the length of what you need to make your retirement work. So, well, that that's the basic idea that the efficient frontier for retirement income. To the extent possible, we're not thinking about annuities as stock replacements. And one of the other questions we'll talk about later today gets into that point in more detail. Uh, you think of annuities more as bond replacements, that they match and the spending you need. If you live a long time, they give you more income. If you don't live very long, you don't get as much from the annuity, but you didn't need as much in that scenario anyway.
1: And I would say high level, why, why is this research turning out like this? It's, it's simply, if you think about it, The expected returns from bonds are the bond yields, right? Whatever that bond yield is relative to the maturity. Uh, With annuities, insurance companies effectively take your money and reinvest it in bonds, right? They can do it on an institutional level, so there's some benefits, and maybe they can squeak out an extra basis point here and there. But because they're able to pool your mortality and and base their liabilities on average lifespan – there's a little bit of a bump. There's a mortality premium that they can present. So they can provide higher returns, you know, through pooling everyone's mortality. And so that is where, in essence, the extra bump comes from. And so if you have similar investment characteristics as bonds, plus a mortality premium, then it's very hard to, on a numbers basis, show how you know, a basic plain vanilla annuity isn't as much if not better from an income standpoint than bonds from, an you know, from an income and efficiency standpoint. That's really high level where it's coming from. Did I miss anything on that one? Whit?
2: No, no. And it, it also ties into the previous question, too, that when you have that reliable income, I, I really like to think about that as part of the bond portfolio Uh Because if you look at the the present value of these income streams, they are very bond-like in nature. And that just then means (laughs) with your remaining investment portfolio, it could be invested more aggressively because uh, you'll have all these bonds on the side as well, in addition to the portfolio.
1: Okay. And then, uh, and incidentally, as we're getting right in, please don't write like, a lot of text, simply because we can't spend 30 seconds reading it and digesting it and trying to think of a, a quick answer. Yeah, that's a YouTube uh, cliff live notes as, as, <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, I just said YouTube live. <laughs> cliff notes as, as much as possible, just dragging it, just the basic stuff. Uh, so here's the perfect you know, like, you know, type of question. What are the thoughts about buffered ETFs as an investment? Mm-hmm. You want to go first, way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That actually ties into one of the questions we had planned that came in beforehand too. That was, so buffered ETFs are the cousins of fixed index annuities or registered index linked annuities. And so we, we got a question on the annuity side of that, but this would just be the investment side. Uh, I, I think there's potential there to provide an interesting play on the risk return trade-offs for a retirement portfolio, like a buffered ETF to just explain real quickly if the buffer is zero, it, it's going to act more like a fixed index annuity where you wouldn't be able to have a negative return. And then you get some portion of upside, but not the full market upside potential. Uh, if you have, a, say, a 10% buffer, then if it, it's linked to some external index, say the S&P 500, and it's linked to the price returns, not the total returns. But if the price returns on the index, that, that would be excluding dividends. If the price returns were negative, the, the buffered ETF with a 10% buffer would eat the first 10% of losses. So they say the S&P 500 ended down uh, 5% for the year, you'd be credited with zero. If it was down 15%, you'd have a, a 5% loss. So it does take away some of the downside risk. But in exchange, it may have a cap where if the cap's say 20%, if the price returns were 30%, you would be capped at 20% as a gain for the year. If the price return was 10%, you'd get the full 10% of the return. So it, it's compressing, it's changing the dynamics of upside and downside, uh, pulling that in closer. Uh, David Blanchett did publish an article where he said a 10% buffered type product approximates uh, a 60 40 portfolio. So instead of, it's kind of like a 60% stock allocation instead of being fully invested in the underlying stock index. And and I've been able to develop similar results to that. And and so I I do think it's an interesting tool that it it fits more in the risk wrap quadrant and then potentially thinking about the the role, especially with like a a 0% buffer as a bond alternative in other quadrants as well.
1: Wade, what did you mention at the beginning? What makes it a cousin? of those structured products that insurance companies have as opposed to, you know, a closer like a sibling. <laughs> well, maybe sibling is a better term. It's just
2: the the re- underlying return structure is quite similar, but one is an insurance product and the other is yeah. a investment like mutual fund or ETF.
1: So what benefit or non-benefit does an insurance product have versus just buying it off the ETF?
2: Well, the insurance version of it can always be annuitized. Uh, people yeah, even, rarely do right. that, uh, but it could have a, a lifetime income benefit. And that's where looking at a fixed index annuity or registered index linked annuity with a lifetime income benefit gives you the, the risk pulling and mortality credits as well. And then in the insurance framework, you do get tax deferral, but you don't get the long term capital gains treatment. So there's some tax differences as well.
1: Okay, Perfect. We got a question about long-term care insurance, but I don't, I don't I, you know. I appreciate the question. I just, it's timing in life is everything, right? Well, uh, yeah. When
2: we get through these Q and A's, we are planning an arc on long-term care, so
1: we'll we'll address
2: that question in in depth in coming episodes. Okay,
1: then let's go back to the questions from that we gave out to the our readers this weekend, just to you know do a little dance here. of essential living expenses will be covered by pension and Social Security. That's great. Uh, How should having those guaranteed annuities impact the way I look at allocating investments to fund the remaining 20 plus percent? I'm reading Wade's book and it is very helpful. Thank you. Mm, Thank you. That was uh, Mary Beth (laughs) Fowle. (laughs) (laughs) my mother.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, great question. And I addressed it a little bit. There's two opinions about this. And I addressed the opinion I I take, which is you can treat that as part of the bond allocation, which allows you to invest more aggressively with the remainder. The other opinion about this is you don't, uh, you just kind of ignore the reliable income sources, whatever you look at the investment portfolio in isolation and whatever the, your risk tolerance tells you as a suitable asset allocation based on your ability to stomach short-term volatility. That's what you'd go with. Your regard, so it wouldn't matter if you had no social security, no pensions, or if you had all your expenses covered by social security and pensions, that wouldn't impact your asset allocation. Again, I'm saying that's not yeah, but- that's not my preferred approach. My preferred approach is if you've got your expenses covered for the most part with reliable income sources... If you if you want, I mean, it's not needed; it's not essential. But if you want, you can invest more aggressively with the remaining investment assets. For that reason,
1: yeah. What you what you find here is ultimately you're you're doing great. I I think anything over seventy percent is like amazing, you know, and seventy percent is great. So you're you're beyond that. So congratulations. I I think it's the phrase "risk is a preference." You know, at, at that level, Wade's getting at how do you frame your allocation, do you look at the household allocation or do you look at it in individual slices? And this goes back to even the RISA, really. If you're a time segmentation person or, or something along those lines, you would probably tend to bucket these kind of views of, of the allocations. And that's where Wade was getting at like, look, I, I want to make sure every single bucket is doing well independently, right? I, I think a more efficient way if you can stomach it or if if you have the, the the sort of the framework in place and the right right temperament is to look at it as a household, and you kind of have a license here because of how your income is set up to really uh, do what you want. You you have a lot of preference here, so I don't I don't I I, I think you're good either way. But uh, our own proclivities are, you know, you have room to run on the investment side.
2: Mm-hmm
1: all right. Uh, there are a couple okay. more
2: live questions coming in, too. Uh, All right. Filter them in. Yeah, one of them is, can you discuss how far in advance of retirement should you do annuity planning, such as for a QLAC or a, a, a SPIA to be set up? And we've had a, a few questions about QLAC, so we will talk more about what that is in general. But specifically for this question, how far in advance, I generally say, like, as a rule of thumb about – you you. You, don't, you can wait until retirement before you start thinking about it, but if you're planning in advance about five or 10 years before retirement, uh, if you're much further than that, you may not really know when you're going to retire in large part, and it's not necessarily going to be tax efficient to have an annuity start paying you while you're still working. So like in my case, I am interested in a QLAC and a single, well, is a little different, but a single premium immediate annuity, deferred income annuity, uh, but- to the extent that I don't really know when I'm not going to have sufficient uh, labor-related income coming in. I don't know when I should have those payments start. And, and so, in that regard, it's really too early to, to plan for that. But you, once you start getting within five or ten years before retirement and you're becoming fairly sure about when you plan to retire, that could be a good time to start thinking about it.
1: Okay. Uh, another question here about your... Uh... My your, your your satorial <laughs> your uh, preferences yeah, here. Yeah, uh, uh, he's representing Mac- <laughs> McLean Asset Management. I was telling my kids as I got as I as I sent them off to school. I've had this sweater since I think my freshman year in college. It must stretch because I've definitely gained weight. It's an <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, like 40 we sent that question, Alan. I no thirty. What the hell, man? <laughs> but Alan, yeah, man. We we got tons of tons of swag. Tons of swag. Uh wait till you see the caps. Uh so here we go from Mike. And wait, I don't know what you what about what you're thinking is we have questions on that came in, but you know, the live ones can take us through for this session, <laughs> and then we, we'll just knock these out. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, yeah. on uh you know, like, okay, so since these are live, kind of, I don't know, there's a little more energy when they're live. Uh, so have you seen Professor Stott already when they begin like that? Uh, no, I've never seen any. Uh, but have you seen Professor Scott, uh, I can't, it's a little too small on my screen, X, Y, Z, Scott something, Cedar research Herd. demonstrating Cedar Herd, research demonstrating that a 50-50 US X US all equity portfolio beats a a stock bond or target date fund in both accumulation and retirement. Very interesting. Uh,
2: Yeah. yeah. And we had questions about that same article come in too, as part of this backlog of questions we're working through. I've not read the article. uh, And so I don't know if it really has anything truly interesting or new in it. But this general idea that all stock portfolios beat more diversified portfolios is not necessarily a new concept. It's something that you see over and over and certainly have observed it in my own research as well with different countries' data and so forth that there's sequence risk with stocks. But generally, when you look at historical data... Whenever the stock market has gone down, it recovers quick enough so that an all-stock portfolio might still meet the spending goal and support a higher legacy than a diversified portfolio. Uh, That sometimes leads people to the conclusion that retirees should hold 100% stocks. Uh, If you're very probability-based, you might ultimately go that route. Not everyone's going to be comfortable with that sort of approach, but no, certainly it's not Really, a surprise or a, a new thing that high stock allocations outperform other equity allocations. But in terms of what else that article has, I, I did, it's a very long article. <laughs> so I did not actually read it yet, but I have seen, I mean, I just don't know if it has something new or if it's just really rehashing past results.
1: Yeah, what you see is in these kind of things, they kind of go in cycles, right? Like, okay, this guy may get his 15 minutes of fame and then. You know, it disappears, and then seven years later, someone writes something very similar, and and, you know that kind of thing. Look, the 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 way I would look at this is is really just take it with a grain of salt. The the way Wade said it, at at the end of the day, there there's there's a very famous article written a while back by I I forgot who, very very famous guy, but you know, falls on deaf ears for me. Uh, Why not one hundred percent equity? right in in terms of a portfolio, and the joke was because over the long term stocks go up, so why not just go all in? I think it's it's a preference on an accumulation standpoint, I can be a little more uh, sanguine about about that kind of option because I'm working. I have human capital, I can work, I don't need the income you know I, I can just always accumulate, accumulate you know, put it in, put my deferrals in and when the stocks go down, it's actually a good thing from a dollar, dollar cost averaging perspective. But as you retire, you have no more human capital. You have no more fallback on, if anything, to fall back on. And so this is becoming a retirement paycheck for you. And the reality is it's it's just not a safe thing to do. It, it's not necessarily prudent. I mean, yes, over, over the long term, stocks go up. Everyone gets the math. But the path that it takes to get there is, is a bit circuitous. And it's not necessarily aligned with your yearly liabilities. And then that's when you run into problems. Well, and this actually, I mean, that's, it does align with
2: my answers to some of the earlier questions too, about if you have plenty of reliable income, yeah, you can be 100% stocks of the rest. Yeah. And the reason to say that is this point that 100% stocks tends to outperform lower stock allocations. But if you don't have that reliable income and you're dependent on that portfolio, even though on average, and even most of the time, the 100% stock allocation would do better, uh, it does create more shortfall risk, more downside risk, and, and you just have to assess whether you're comfortable with that. And, and just behaviorally, it can be hard for individuals as they age to maintain 100% stock allocation. So if, even if this is the truly rational answer about asset allocation, you do have to consider whether you can stomach the volatility that might generate as well.
1: While you're taking income, it's not just because it, the stomach involatility in accumulation is different than stomach volatility during the, the accumulation when you're dependent on the, on the paycheck. But again, based on your research profile, maybe you have essential expenses covered. Maybe your income protection and you're just looking at this you know, as, as a surplus. But if your total return and your only total return as your strategy, I, I would caveat those studies because – you don't have human capital anymore and, and that's the difference.
2: And you're right about these studies like, recycling. I remember even maybe it was yeah, 10 years the ago, there was one about how you should actually leverage your like be 200 or 300% stock allocations and, and it's the same concept yeah, is because on average, you, you do better that way, but again, it's, it's a risky strategy.
1: Yeah, you see it all the time. I mean, you know, the recent outperformance of U.S. versus international is you're going to see studies on, is international stocks even needed? You know, are international stocks even needed, et cetera, et cetera. It is what it is. Uh, so, let's see here. What else do we have? Yeah, uh, we're getting
2: lots of these live questions. We might even, the, the pre-planned questions <laughs> we have, we may just save for the next
1: episode, too. We'll <laughs> just uh... save them for the next episode because if people are live, I'd yeah. rather try <laughs> kind of like…
2: Yeah, so the, the next one on the list is we want to defer Social Security until one of us is 70. The cost to do so will be about 20% of our savings. Is that a reasonable expense to maximize Social Security? Uh, based on research I've done, yeah, I, I certainly... that That's the idea in the short term, until you get to 70, you're going to be spending down your other assets more quickly. But then after age 70, your Social Security benefit is so much higher that reduces the distribution pressure on your other investments. And so if you live to, at some point in your 80s probably, (laughs) you're gonna start to be better off with your remaining investments. Even though you spent them down more quickly, after age 70, the less pressure there is on those investments, they're gonna have more opportunity to recover or at least not decline as quickly. And in the long term, you're gonna be able to leave a larger legacy with the social security delay. So social security delay doesn't work if you don't have the resources to fund the delay. But I I do think that just 20% of the savings is within a, a reasonable range of, yes, that can be okay. If you're someone who is planning for the possibility of living into your 90s, you're likely to still benefit from a much larger legacy or more assets remaining at the end of that retirement by having delayed social security even though in the short run you were accelerating the spend down of
0: those assets for a while. There you have it. Are you getting close to or are you in retirement? Well, investing during retirement is a little bit different than during your working years. Your investments are there to help you pay for retirement. And now is when they need to earn their keep. To make sure you're on the right track, download Retirement Researcher's 8 Tips to Becoming a Retirement Income Investor by heading over to retirementresearcher.com slash eight tips. Again, get Retirement Researcher's eight tips to becoming a retirement income investor by going to retirementresearcher.com slash eight tips. That's the number eight tips.
1: Uh, here's another one here. Uh, critics of factor investing and then in parents, for example, okay, uh, you know, value stocks, small value, et cetera. Critics of factor investing recommend holding international for diversification, but rarely in proportion to world cap weightings. Seems hypocritical. Thoughts? Okay, uh, I, I'll start. I'll start this one off. Uh, I don't know if hypocritical is the right word, but I, I know what you mean here. Eff- effectively, listen. If you're into passive investing, and you know the markets, you know uh, the markets in aggregate have all information, and it's reflected in prices. Then you could make the case, a strong case, that in that line of thinking, you should your portfolio, your equity portfolio, should just reflect the world equity portfolio because that's how the world chooses to allocate their assets in aggregate. Any deviation from that is "quote unquote" a bet, right? That that kind of thinking. Uh, where I would say is you should hold that global representation of stocks to the degree that you consider yourself the aggregate average investor. And so once you put that up against that assumption, it, it kind of falls apart you know, quickly in terms of why don't you hold what the world represents, right? The first one being that we're in the U.S. And so you spend money in the U.S., And so it's much more valuable to overweight that accordingly, you know, and simply put, there's a lot of moving around as well, you know? And so uh, where I would say a a few years ago, the world represented, like it was split world U S like 50, 50, roughly speaking, right. In the low fifties, you know, with the tip, tip of the hat towards the U S where in the eighties, a lot more U S than you know, recently, then it was like 50, 50 ish. Now it's, well over 60% U.S. versus international. And you're not going to be moving around, bumping around just because of that arbitrary sort of composition. So just because, oh, I got a hold of the world assets. You're not. You're not the average investor. You know, that, that's a good enough reason to deviate relative to you're not making market bets. Right. Now, you can make the same case. What about with bonds and, and things along those lines? That gets a little trickier. You know, and, and even backtrack with equity a little bit. The reason to diversify to me with international stocks is you have a greater sample, a greater representation of which you can capture market returns. So why not, why not capture them, right? Why, why not do that? You know, and I don't think you need to have point blank, look at global and domestic and be like, OK, I'm at 60 percent. So I got to match 60 percent or the world is at 55. Let me go down to 55. I think really you get a healthy slug of it. And you're in good shape. For us, McLean, where uh, Wade bought that, has that beautiful jacket. Effectively, I, we're, we're two thirds. You know, U.S. to international. Why two thirds? It's a good round number. Frankly, it gives us a healthy dose of it, and it gives us good representation of potential market returns across the globe. Why aren't we whatever the exact number? Because it doesn't matter. You know, and I don't think we're necessarily. You know, we're passive investors. We're not necessarily being hypocritical or not. Uh, but I think it has to do with how, how representative they are. Now, when it comes to fixed income, that's a little bit of a different ball of wax. There's less randomness there. And so you don't need to diversify. And by randomness, I mean like, you know, the stocks are, bonds are kind of known. You know, the, the expected return of the bond is what the yield is. And, and you just do the math on that. And you can figure it out. So there's less randomness to be had there or extra returns to capture from a diversification standpoint. It's a little more muted from that perspective. So you have that. as You don't need to sort of do as much. The other piece is the currency risk. If you introduce currency risk within your bonds, those things can go all over the place, which then defeats the purpose of being in fixed income anyways. But there is something to be said for having... You know, if you go international and if you can sort of hedge for currency, then, you know, dip your toes in a little bit, you know, assuming it's high credit, et cetera, et cetera. You you can do that. But I don't think there's any need to be robotic about following the global representation of that for the reasons I previously mentioned uh, to equities and even less so in fixed income. Uh, Hand it off to Wade
2: yeah yeah I do see the the point of the question about this it seems hypocritical to not want to overweight towards particular factors but at the same time not taking the market portfolio with international I do like to hold that world portfolio myself with the inter- so the that international allocation like a little bit under 40 percent but close but yeah uh, you, you got some flexibility and I guess the argument in favor of not, Holding that world portfolio is kind of if your liability is in U.S. dollars, you're trying to fund expenses linked to U.S. inflation. It could make sense to overweight to the U.S. market. But, um, yeah, beyond that, it's subject to some interpretation or flexibility for what individuals feel most comfortable with.
1: Okay. And then uh, we'll just do these. we got three more and then we'll call it on on the live episode here, Wade. Uh, So we've got the, or did we, where can one find more information
2: regarding the social security tax torpedo and the best methods to avoid it outside of listening to episode 105 of retire with style, which is that the, uh, the article where I talk about the effective marginal tax rate. Let me, I actually have our podcasts open here let me kind of in real time, check what episode 105 was. Yeah, managing taxes and retirement using the effective marginal tax rate. So that's brand new content, That this idea of using tax maps. I think it really helps to understand the tax torpedo. What I've been doing this past week is updating the, the retirement planning guidebook. We'll, by the end of the month, we'll have a 2024 edition, and I'm completely redoing the whole explanation of tax-efficient retirement distributions. So I think there's going to be much better explanations of the Social Security Tax torpedo in the context of these tax maps. Uh, So I would say look for the 2024 edition of the retirement planning guidebook. And then as well with the retirement researcher, um, we do have workshops, the not so much on social security for this topic, but on the tax planning and for tax-efficient retirement distributions. I do talk about this in the retirement planning guidebook in chapter 10 on tax planning. And I will be significantly revising the discussion around that for the 2024 edition.
1: Yeah, uh, again, not pitch retirement researcher, but pitching retirement researcher. That's a huge education site that Wade and myself, but really like Bob French, curates it and manages it. So I, I definitely, if you want more info, just check that out retirementresearcher.com, but also on that episode 20, uh, 105, we have in the show notes, I believe we have a link to the article. Wade, if you have it up, can you just double check that the link is up there? Because uh, Wade wrote an article yeah. on it with, uh, I, 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 I'm going to mispronounce that gentleman's last name. Joel Sasser. <laughs> Joel Sasser. Uh, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of, who was that attorney in uh, Arrested Development? That... uh yeah. You I mean Henry uh, Winkler's character or the or the bob no, blah blah? Uh, bob blah, blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like the the uh, it's a little bit like bob blah blah. blah. <icles> La, bla, <onyang>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we
2: didn't say um, what the tax torpedo was, but just as a reminder, oh. as you start to generate income and you have a social security benefit a dollar of ordinary income can also trigger tax on a portion of your social security benefit. And so it compounds the tax impact where you may think you're in the 10% federal income bracket and you're paying at 18.5%. Or you may think you're in the 12% bracket and paying at 22.2%. Or if you're a single person, the tax torpedo can hit you when you're in the 22% bracket where you're now paying at a 40.7% rate. And so that's where people can be surprised at just how high the effective marginal tax rate is on their income and retirement.
1: Okay. And does that tie into the last question? Wade, I was reading the other question, so I didn't hear your full answer.
2: Oh, yeah. The there is, I, I didn't quota. see that. But, right, there's. so what's the effective tax rate on Social Security's tax torpedo? The marginal is 40.7% for a single filer. Uh, yeah, it can. well, it depends on how big your Social Security benefit is. And this is where there's not just one tax torpedo, but for single filers, they can be running into the tax torpedo when they're in their 22% bracket. And so that's what would create the 40.7% effective marginal rate. That's not and, going to impact uh, a couple married filing jointly because they're going to get through the full tax torpedo while they're still in the 12% bracket. So it'd be a 22.2% effective marginal rate.
1: Okay, questions keep on coming in. Wow, I didn't see that. Uh, okay, Uh do you do you recommend buying tip bonds or tip bond ladders in a taxable account for those people in retirement that don't have a lot of money in IRAs? What about the phantom income tax? Is it ever okay? <laughs> I, I, that's almost like a planning question, but we have to look at that person's particular situation, right? Yeah, and I mean, then, then it's like that one, I bonds, I, I, and how much they're planning to put in. But,
2: but Right. You definitely need to look at the individual circumstances, but if the question is just more basically, should you never buy tips in a taxable account? Uh, I would say, no, there may be situations where it's fine to buy tips in a taxable account, especially if you don't have other options and you do have a time segmentation strategy or you do want that inflation protection. You shouldn't be scared away from owning tips in a taxable account uh, just because this, well, the phantom income problem, which is where you have to pay taxes on the inflation adjusted principle, even though Uh, You don't receive that back until it it matures. So you're paying taxes on income you haven't received yet. They're not tax efficient. It's better when you can to have TIPS held in a tax-advantaged account. But if that's simply not an option, it, it doesn't necessarily lead you to conclude you should not own TIPS. Also, don't forget okay. about i bonds. If if you have a long runway, you do have that allocation to i bonds, which provides the inflation protection, though at a lower level than tips generally. But at least you do get the tax deferral with with i bonds.
1: Okay, and wait, I, since we're forty five minutes in, uh, and these are great questions, uh, Brian, Paul, Jeff, etc. I, I think we can address this, but uh, I don't know. What do you feel? You want to push through or are we, we're trying to do 45 minute limit on our <laughs> podcast this season. See if we can keep to that, but uh, I'll leave it. I'll let Wade be the bad guy. Oh, yeah,
2: uh, it would be nice. There, there are getting to be more and more of the live questions. So we probably aren't going to get through them all now. We can, we'll do them in the, the next episodes, but maybe at least one more question.
1: Okay. Why don't you, uh, dealer's choice.
2: Okay, how about this Medicare-related one? Although I haven't fully internalized it, but okay, I'm age 63, retired, not collecting Social Security, and covered under my spouse's employer health care. I always make the maximum HSA contribution every year. Should I sign up for Medicare Part A at 65 or defer? So that the issue here is, I guess we're still assuming you're, you're going to be covered under the spouse's employment healthcare after age 65, so you have the option not to sign up for Medicare. If you qualify for Social Security, you should qualify for premium free Medicare Part A. So a lot of times the recommendation is you may not want to sign up for Part B since you're covered through the spouse's plan, but there's no harm in signing up for Part A since there's no premium and it would be secondary insurance if there's a hospital stay. The only downside of that is you can no longer contribute to an HSA account after you're you've signed up for Medicare Part A. And so if you really value Which is probably why they put that Yeah, yeah. So that would be why this question is. <laughs> so if you value the ability to contribute to the HSA account and you don't think you get that much advantage over having Medicare Part A as a secondary coverage, then and, and you are, you have to do, you have to ensure your spouse's healthcare plan, like she she or he or she is at a company with at least 20 employees and does qualify as primary coverage for individuals that are eligible for Medicare. Uh, as long as that's yes. the case, you you may defer signing up for Part A as well so that you can so, continue making HSA contributions.
1: So, so I think the, the, the question here is that the break-even, not the break-even, but the trade-off, better said, is, okay... Do I sign up for it now? And in case things go sideways, yeah, yeah. Sorry, in case things go sideways, and I need that secondary coverage, is that worth not contributing over the next few years to HSA? Whereas HSA will come into play in a more significant level later, and it and it could rule the roost. It's kind of like, that's what they're asking, mm-hmm. which, yeah. which side to and that,
2: bet on. And that could also depend in part on how good the um, that employer health plan is. Like if it has really good coverage yeah. so that you're not really worried about a hospital stay leading to big bills, uh, then you may not need the Medicare party at that point as a secondary coverage.
1: Yeah. I think that's what I would ask internally in, in terms of looking, looking inward. But uh, all right, wait. that concludes uh, episode one for this year right. of YouTube Live. <laughs> all right. Yeah, and, and you, if we everyone. didn't get to your questions,
2: including the other live questions, we're going to record a few more episodes where we're going through all the questions that have been asked both today in the live session as well. And when we had that email call out for your questions, we're, we got an overwhelming response to that. So we're going to continue to answer your questions in the upcoming episodes
1: most definitely. I think we're onto something here with just, you know, getting, getting more interactions with our audience members that I'm actually quite enthused. So, yeah. lets uh, thank you very much. Talking about Long-term
2: care as well. So that's another. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All righty, everyone. Thank
2: you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Looking forward to a great 2024.
0: Bye now. Wade and Alex are both principals of McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.